Gate 14 podcast and folks, we got the white whale, the biggest guest in the history of this podcast. He signed with the Toronto Blue Jays two years ago and has finished top 10 in AL Cy Young voting both years. He led the league in strikeouts last year. Is that good? You tell me. And most importantly, he's our ace. He's a part of the Royal family, the Gossmans. It is Kevin Gossman. Welcome to the Gate 14 podcast, brother. What a pleasure this is to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's it, Johnny said it's a long time coming. What's the offseason been like for you? Relaxed and ready for the season? Yeah, I mean, I got I got two kids under five, so there's not too much relaxing going on, to be honest. You know, it's carpool and gymnastics classes, dance classes, you know, a birthday every weekend. So, um, you know, rest in the body, but, you know, the mind is going nonstop. So it's uh, I'm looking forward to getting back in the clubhouse with around some guys. I mean, you know, I'm the only man in my house. So, you know, at certain times, it's just I'm over all the princess stuff and, you know, I'm ready to get back into the clubhouse. I love that. Let's go into the Toronto stuff here because obviously um, you chose to sign here over another team and we're not going to degrade the other team, obviously. But what went into that decision of you deciding to sign for less money playing for the Toronto Blue Jays? You know, I mean, for me, Toronto has kind of always held a special place in my heart just because that's where I made my major league debut. So, you know, uh, playing there in Baltimore, it was, you know, it was always a good matchup too. Um, you know, us against the Blue Jays, we were one of the better teams in the American League while I was in Baltimore. And, you know, it's definitely true for Toronto um, around that time. So, you know, I always loved going there and traveling there and, you know, being able to, explore the city a little bit it's I mean as you guys know it's such a different city than you know Philly or New York you know and uh, Chicago it's just you know it's Canada so it's it's a completely different country and um, you know you kind of feel that right away and so uh, you know early on in my career Toronto was always fun too because you know that's when we dressed up usually when we had to leave Toronto and and go through customs. So that was always something that, you know, we look forward to to September call-ups where we got to dress up all the young guys and make them go through customs with, you know, Joe Schmo. And so uh, it always kind of held a special place in my heart. And 21, um, going in, you know, at, as a guy looking at other teams, it was, you know, the Blue Jays were, were the team that it was like, you know, these guys have a lot of talent and a lot of young talent that are going to be there you know, while I'm still there, you know, not guys that are one year away from, you know, going into free agency, a lot of young guys. So uh, I automatically kind of thought that that would be a great place to be. And, you know, since we've, since we've been there, it's been even better. And, you know, they're amazing with the families and, and everybody in the organization is first class. And, you know, our spring training complex is unbelievable. And, you know, now they did the outfield and they're doing the, the inner bowl right now. So, you know, they're renovating all these special things and, we're going to have the best clubhouse in the big leagues. You know, I think our, our strength department is one of the best in, in all baseball. And so, you know, our training room is probably going to be that way too. So, you know, all these things, they're kind of checking every single box. And so now it's just about going out there and, and really kind of, you know, doing what I set out the goal to do when I signed here. And that's to win the division, but not just win the division, but, you know, hopefully win a championship. You, uh, one of your last tweets, you said you're not a big Twitter guy to us, was kind of the media was going through at Toronto, right? It was, they don't really know. What do you think the biggest misconception is from outside media and just kind of your little platform to talk more about that tweet that you had? Yeah, I mean, it's just so annoying because it, it comes from somebody who, you know, we see once a year, you know, who comes in to, to do a YouTube game or you know, do, do one of these, you know, the Peacock game or something like, so it's so annoying when someone comes in for, for three days out of the summer, um, probably stays half a block from the stadium and, and doesn't really check out more the city, you know? So that's what, but, you know, honestly, as a visiting player, you don't really get as much time to, to check out Toronto. So, you know, I can see how if someone just goes there for two days, you know, I could see how they could have an, un, you know, a, a, a messed up view of what the city is like and, and what the people are like. 
but you know the more that I've been there the more I've realized how unique it is to have one team that rep- you really feel that you know it it, it kind of takes being there for a whole year you know now that I'm going into my third year I understand that a lot more but you know it takes going to Seattle and playing you know pretty much a home game in Seattle like that's one of the coolest things you know when they're thinking about selling Blue Jays stuff in the Seattle Mariners pro shop like that's crazy you know so it just doesn't happen and so it just kind of goes to show you you know and like meeting fans from the west coast of Canada you know people who've been going to Seattle to watch the Blue Jays play for the last 10 years with their family and um, you know I made the mistake last year walking around with Manoa and like you can't hide with that guy you know he's (laughs) he's huge and like He's, so, like, everybody's like, hey, that's Manoa. You know, you walk by and you turn around and there's 20 people that are like, yeah, that's him for sure. Like, you know, I can kind of sneak by. Like, I kind of look like the, the normal, just, like, generic tall white guy, right? Like, I'm skinny, so I can kind of get away with it. The long hair definitely would kind of make people double check. But, you know, Manoa can't go where. Like, he sticks out. Like, so it's funny. But I just hate how I, I feel like there's a messed up opinion of, of really Canada in general, you know, but it's usually from people that haven't really been too much or spent much time in Canada. Yeah, that makes sense. So I got a question. So I did, um, I studied the Kevin Gossman from the college days. And the first video that comes up is you crow hopping, pull down directly into your cat, like just launching a baseball into your catcher. And I got to ask you this, just me be, this is a dumb question maybe, but how much did your catcher hate you? I mean, you are doing a legit pull down 108 right at, right at the catcher before you'd throw off the mound. Was there a little bit of tension between you and that college catcher? Yeah. Well, originally I used to tell him to like get down too. So I used to make him get down and like you go from, you know, flat land to up on the slope to, to let me eat as hard as you can. You know, there was definitely times I threw the ball like 50 feet. You know, as hard as I could. So, um, you know, luckily my my catcher in college was my roommate, Ty Ross. So, you know, I could kind of get away with a little bit more because because, you know, we were we were boys. But, yeah, none of them really liked it too much. And, um, you know, even when I was in San Francisco, like I always throw the first one from behind the, the bullpen or from behind the mound to start the inning. And like even Buster Posey thought that that was like Iowa, which is it. He's like, all right, no. I love to do and you know it started back in Colorado growing up I always felt like I, I would come in from you know right field to come in to pitch and I just wanted to like get one extra like crow hop in to kind of like let it eat I guess um, and my dad used to always tell me to like throw it halfway up the backstop like really just intimidate the crap out of everybody like come in there just throw a crow hop as hard as you can but backstop and like tell your catcher to even tell him like this guy has no clue where the ball is going, you know? And, and, uh, you know, baseball in Denver, Colorado isn't very good. So, you know, if you're throwing 90 or above, like everybody treats it like you're throwing a hundred. What kind of pitcher did you see yourself at in college? Cause we, I had a guy text me, he said, look at his college scouting report. And it said plus breaking ball. And now that's kind of been totally eliminated. So you go to Baltimore, <laughs> where did you, where did things change? How did you see yourself as a pitcher and kind of where you think of even your own progression as a pitcher kind of taking that breaking ball away? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Me and me and Bassett would always talk about it because, you know, we kind of came up around the same time. And it was like, throw, if you throw sinkers, throw them down in the zone and, and throw your slider or breaking ball down in the zone too. Um, and then, you know, we kind of realized that everybody can hit pitches down in the zone a lot easier. Um, you know, and I actually, it's funny. I never threw a four seam fastball until I was in the big leagues and I was throwing a bullpen and my pitching coach was like, all right, well, you know, you, that's your two seamer. Like, let me see your four seamer. And I, I was like, what is that? You know, like I just didn't, that just wasn't the thing. I was always the sinker guy. And so, you know, my biggest comp when I got drafted was Kevin Brown, who to me is one of the best sinker ballers ever. And it's so funny that I got drafted and made it to the big leagues doing that. And now, you know, the back half of my career, I've been a a four seam up in the zone guy, like 
high rise, you know, I'm trying to vert, vert, kind of let my vert work. Um, and I think that really helps me out because I, I think the majority of the league pitches west to east and I pitch north and south. And so, you know, that kind of helps me a lot. And you're seeing the game evolve. You know, you're going to start seeing guys being able to hit the ball up in the zone and pitchers are going to have to start, you know, throwing sinkers. And um, the game is always changing. But, yeah, it's funny because, like, you know, I thought I had a good breaking ball in college, but, you know, then you're getting pro ball and, and all of a sudden it's like these guys can hit anything. And so um, it was kind of more uh, more of a necessity, like I had to change something. You know, I, I was at the point in my career where I kind of had to, but I was always searching for, you know, the right slider grip or the right breaking ball grip. And, um, you know, but and, – and I'm still searching for that. You know, I'm still searching for that, that perfect pitch to – to go the other way against a righty, you know, but now I'm just fine with pitching to my strengths a little bit more and, and knowing how good my split is, you know, that's the pitch I'm trying to get to. Yeah, that makes sense. And this is a common man question. Like I said, I don't know if you're quite familiar with this podcast. I'm the dumb one. Avery's the smart one. Um, When did you kind of realize, like, like at what point did you realize, all right, like I am all the way fucking back. Like, obviously you struggled at, at, at the beginning of your career. Then you started working, like you said, North, North to South, is that the North to South? Yeah. Those when are did the you start? When did you start to realize? Like, what? <laughs> when did it click for you? Like, all right, I'm all the way back. Like, I am. I'm. I'm good at baseball again. Like, what point of your career was that? Like, was it a game? When was it? Um, probably when I got traded to Atlanta. Honestly, you know, unfortunately, when I was with Baltimore, we were just kind of a little bit behind the curve when it came to, you know, metrics and really understanding like pitching the guys' strengths. You know, I look back on scouting reports early in my career and, you know, they would tell everybody in the room, like, hey, right-handed pitchers pitch this way, lefties pitch this way. And then it would be like, all right, and like, don't give up home runs. All right, break. You know, like that was it. And now, you know, I got traded to Atlanta. I went from being on a terrible team in Baltimore. I mean, we we won, we lost 100 games two years in a row. 2018, we're really struggling. Um, you know, Manny gets traded. Uh, Jonathan Scope gets traded. I get traded. Brad Brock, like. Darren O'Day, they kind of just get rid of everybody. Atlanta and nothing's on. And at the time, it was kind of like, you want me to throw fastballs like belt high or above? Like that sounds crazy to me. Um, but we also want you to throw your split way more than you ever have. And I mean, I was two starts into Atlanta, and I could just kind of see the swings and misses that I was getting, the the foul balls that I was getting against guys that I'd faced for you know five six years in the big leagues. Um, you know, was a lot different and kind of reminded me of like when I was back in high school, some of the swings I would get. And so, you know, they told me, Hey, don't pitch it. Don't pitch out of the windup anymore. You kind of suck out of the windup. So just pitch out of the stretch. You're okay out of the stretch. And so, you know, I'd started just pitching out of the stretch and, um, you know, I think I made 10 starts for him in, in 18. And I think I was like seven and two or seven and three, like really pitched well. A lot of games going deep into games, um, you know, striking out more guys than I ever had. And so that was kind of the, the moment that was like, all right, maybe maybe all these metrics and what they're telling me to do, you know, I might be on to something. And then 2019, I tried to come in to camp doing the same thing, and I just couldn't get my fastball up. No matter what I did, it was – I would miss middle and a lot of times, and I'd get a lot of O2 counts, like in favorable counts for a pitcher, but just couldn't execute the pitch. and. Um, had to change my delivery in 19, but, you know, in 19, I, I got DFA'd by Atlanta, went to Cincinnati. Um, you know, I was essentially the, the last guy in the totem pole out in the bullpen for a while and just kind of working on things, uh, changed my delivery. And, you know, I had probably one outing that um, kind of opened my eyes more than any. I was pitching against uh, the Cubs, I think, or the Cardinals. I think it was the Cardinals and um, – punched out six and two innings with one of them being an immaculate inning. And that was kind of like, you know, like, all right, I, I know I could be a really good reliever, you know, but in the back of my mind, I still wanted to start. I still wanted that opportunity. And so it was kind of more so about how am I going to do this as a starting pitcher, you know? And, and uh, it was kind of crazy because at the time there wasn't really many starting pitchers that were primarily two pitch guys. Um, 
and especially be a guy being, you know, my secondary pitch, my primary secondary pitch being a pitch that, you know, 90% of the league doesn't even throw. So it was really kind of a big question mark. And going into that offseason, I didn't know what teams were even going to value me as, um, you know, and the Giants called me and essentially said exactly how I felt. Like, we want you to pitch just how you did in the bullpen with the Reds, but we want you to be a starter. Um, and I was kind of shocked. And and uh, I actually grew up a huge Giants fan. So, you know, that was kind of a dream for me to to play in San Francisco. And I grew up a huge Barry Bonds fan. So my best friend was a huge Giants fan. So we were always watching the games. And, you know, he was the first person I called, like, hey, I'm going to be a Giant. And he was like, dude, no way. You know, like, we're losing our mind. <clears throat> and then obviously COVID happens. And COVID was probably one of the best things that happened to me because, I bought a I bought a mound and put it in my garage and just worked on my new delivery and by the time we came back I was I was pretty locked in. Hell yeah. I want to go back to some of the the Giants times. 2021, you really came into your own at the plate. You hit 185. <laughs> Do you think you're the reason why they took away the pitcher DH cuz you got too good at it? <laughs> hey, I probably am the last person to hit a Sack fly. So sick. Yeah. Sack fly last time. Walk off, right? Otani. Otani kind of ruins all the stats, you know? Like, if that guy wasn't in there, you know, me and Logan Webb, we'd be part of history. He hit one on the last day of the season. But now with Otani, like, you know. Yours was a pinch hit, right? It was a pinch hit, walk off, sack fly. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. And actually, Brandon Belt was on deck. So it 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 was awesome. He was, like, the first guy that got to me. Um, and I mean, it was, it was incredible. Like, that's what you dream of. I tell people all the time, that's probably, you know, my most proud moment in the big leagues is doing that just because it was so, it was just so unexpected, you know, and the crowd was going crazy. Like it was a packed game. It was like like a Saturday night. Um, it was kind of cold, but everybody still was in the stands, like great game, like 11th or 12th inning. And I mean, I'm in the, I'm in the, like in the tunnel, in the batting cage, just trying to get swings in, you know, thinking like there's no way this is going to happen where I actually get up. And, you know, of course they intentionally walk the guy in front of me to get to me. So uh, it just all worked out perfectly. And uh, it was funny because I, I never pulled the ball. Like I could never pull the ball. It didn't matter who, like what pitch it was, whether it was a breaking ball, change up, I just couldn't pull the ball. But I got to 3-2 and uh, I was like, there's no way this guy is going to try to throw me an off-speed pitch right here. And, like, and chance pitcher to lose the game, you know? So I'm just selling out to a heater right here. And it's funny, in the picture, like, you can see me. I'm literally, like, my bat is, like, so far out front because <laughs> I was cheating so bad. Um, like, if he would have thrown me a changeup, I would have I swung three times before it got there. Like, But it was just a, a super cool, cool moment, definitely something I'll never forget. And you mentioned Webby. So Webby, like I said, not to name drop, he's a buddy of mine, obviously, out of my other podcast, and I text him every once in a while. He mentioned a story that you you crush powdered donuts before starts. I believe that was in Baltimore or or it was in San Francisco. Can you let us know what the reasoning was behind that? Because that's absolutely bananas. And you did it during starts at college, right? Yeah, so it started, I think I was 10 or 11. Um and I rode with a buddy to the game. I didn't eat any lunch or anything that day. So I had my mom call, uh, or her mom, his mom call my mom. And just say, like, hey, pick me up something from the gas station. So she picked up powdered donuts, which, like, mom, what are you doing? You know, like, <laughs> why are you picking up powdered donuts for your kid? But whatever. And I pitched great that day. Like, I think I threw a one-hitter or something. Like, it was the best game I'd pitched in my life up to that point. And, like, if you know me, I'm very superstitious. Like, some things I do every single start day in between every inning without even thinking. And that just kind of started right then and there. And through high school, I was, you know, crushing a bag and a half of Hostess Donuts, the little the little oh, mini ones. Shit. And I would have about three in between every inning and uh, did that in college, too. And uh, LSU did a story my freshman year and everybody started bringing bags of donuts to the game for me. So, I mean, by the end of my sophomore year, 
you know, we were number one in the country. And so I was having, you know, five, 10 bags of donuts brought to me every time I pitched, I'll just take them home and like either give them to my roommates, you know, or just leave them at the field for the next start. And, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely not, um, ideal or very smart to be, to be doing that. But, you know, the funniest thing is like, I'll go and watch videos sometimes. And like, you can see like the powdered sugar, like on the, corners of my mouth you know <laughs> like I'm like some like theming for these things but I would just and you know you know I'm kind of a nervous eater so I would always that's kind of what my thing that I would do is you know I would just go in the dugout and just crush a couple donuts and then go back out there you talk about your time at LSU uh obviously sad you didn't get to the college world series there in your last year but you were there while the football team went to a national championship right yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Um, what is that like as a college kid going to an SEC school? Like that's every kid's dream, and you were doing it playing baseball on the best team in the country too. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was the best. Um, you know, it sucked because so we beat Bama that year. Um, that we went to the national championship. We beat them during the regular season. That was the 9-6 to six game, and it was crazy. It was all field goals. Um, pretty boring game. And then, so we go into the national championship game and everybody is super excited. And then we didn't, I, don't, I think we had a total of 50 yards of offense. Like Alabama just absolutely, like Nick Saban just destroyed us, like embarrassed us in the national championship game. But yeah, I mean, that's the, one of the coolest things about LSU. And, you know, now, now that I've been done, I, I mean, I live in Baton Rouge. I'm 10 minutes from the stadium. You know, I go to football games as many as I can in the fall and I mean there is nothing like an SEC football game you know in the fall you know Saturday night in Death Valley is every good every like diehard sports fan should experience it it's really they treat it like you know this is their NFL here and it's 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 crazy the amount of exposure that these guys get and you know obviously having Daniels last year was a Heisman winner if for one year you're going to be, it's fun to be a part of everything here. You know, the gymnastics team is incredible. Like the baseball team obviously won the national championship, had the first two picks in the draft, you know. So LSU right now is probably like the mecca for, for sports in in college. You know, the, the women's basketball team won won the championship. Um, you like the, our dance team just won the national championship, like you name it. So it's it, it's been pretty cool to kind of, you're always you're always kind of part of it, and it, it's definitely cool to see. Yeah, and this is a question from Bassett. He told me he so Bassett. I was playing Fortnite with him earlier, and uh, he told me he's going to write three questions for you. Uh, so the first one he asked is: is this is something that this might be breaking news in the podcast here? You're the food guy for the Blue Jays, so you alpha everyone on the planet, and you pick where the Blue Jays are going to eat dinners. Is that true? Well, I'm the only planner, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess. <laughs> okay, so what he said was, "What is your, what's your favorite restaurant?" He said. He said, "What's the favorite one you've taken the boys to?" Oh, I don't know about the favorite one I've taken the boys to, but, um, I mean, there's so many good ones. We're in so many good cities. Like, there's amazing places in Chicago. New York has unbelievable food spots. Like. Where we where we are in New York, where we stay, I mean, we're so close to so many good restaurants that you could just walk to. Um, but I mean, the best restaurant I think I have ever been to and will ever be go to is probably Jacobs. Like, I think Jacobs is is incredible, you know. And then you have an unbelievable meal, and then they give you muffins when you leave. Like, I mean, that's just like cherry on the top. So, um, you know, it's incredible. You get like. You get home and the next morning you got a muffin from the best steakhouse in, in the city. Like, I mean, you can't beat that. So, I mean, that's definitely one of my favorite spots. But in Toronto, there's so many good spots. There's so many good good places to eat and, and super unique, you know. Um, going with Rue, he takes us to, you know, Korean barbecue places all the time. And um, there's some great places in New York that he's taken us to. So, I'm all about like experiences and I love having like a big table full of the boys all like crushing food and, and drinking some good wine for sure. Yeah. So 
again, not to name drop again, I'm really good buddies with Jano as well. And he told a funny story on this podcast where um, he went out with, he goes out with Ryu to Korean barbecue places and they worship him like he is the second coming of Christ. Is this true? Have, do you have any funny stories about Ryu just walking through there and people like just going bananas about Ryu being in the building? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's he's their LeBron. Like, he's their LeBron James, <laughs> you know? Like, he really he really is. And he's huge. He's just like Manoa. Oh, like, he can't go anywhere. Like, if you're, if you're Korean and you see him, there's no, like, oh, I think that's my cousin. Like, no, that's, that's Hunjin Ru. Like, that's, <laughs> like, there's no, you know, like, there's nobody else like him. Like, he's, he's the biggest Korean I've ever seen, you know? Not that I've seen many Koreans, but he is just such a distinct, like, look and, like, and he walks, he walks so like smooth and like, he's just like, you know, he obviously knows how big of a deal he is, but yeah, you go in some of these places. And I mean, we went one time in New York and like, we went after a night game in New York one time and I don't think we got to the restaurant till like midnight or 1230 and they stayed open. And I mean, they just keep bringing food after food, like, you know, and then, and then he'll turn to his interpreter and interpreter will say like, now they're going to start bringing the good stuff. And like, we've already been there for two hours, you know? And so it's like, all right, now come out like the marinated meat, you know? And it's like, man, like this is crazy. And, and I mean, I don't, I don't even know if he pays, like I've never seen him really pay. So it's just kind of, they, when they come, when he comes there, they kind of, I don't know. They, I don't know if they get more business from him coming and people talking about it, but. I remember Stripling telling me a story about uh, they went to a Korean barbecue place in Baltimore. And when they walked outside, there was like 200 Koreans outside. <laughs> and yeah. And Hunjin like stayed and said hi to every single person. Like they said, it was like one of the coolest things you could imagine. So. That's absolutely electric. He, he seems like the best ever. One of the things from last season, again, was the pitch clock coming in. And they said they were going to ban that foot tap you do before you start your motion. How nervous were you start of the season? And how much did they actually enforce that? Because it seemed by the end, you were just back to how you were throwing before. <laughs> I mean, I was I was really nervous, actually. I, it took me a long time last offseason to get myself to actually stop, you know. Because um, I, I kind of towed that line of stopping or not stopping just about every time. And if it's a big situation, it's even closer, you know? So I was super worried. Um, but honestly, spring was great because, you know, with the checks now, we actually get to talk to them. So if you have an umpire that you like, at least, you know, that's checking you, you can kind of be like, Hey, you know, I know you guys are looking at my delivery, you know, like, what'd you think? Am I, am I close? Like, you know, or am I good? And usually a lot of them would be like, you're good. You know, every time you – every once in a while you run into someone, it's like, you know, if this was a regular season game, I probably would have called a Bach first pitch, you know, and it's like, okay, well, you know, whatever. But, yeah, I mean, I was super nervous. But as the season went on, I think um, the, the worst part about it is that you have these third base and first base coaches that are right by the umpires that will just kind of nibble – and just kind of bicker, you know, that one was close. Like, look at him, you know, like, like he's, he's, he's not coming, he's not stopping. And that's usually, you know, you can kind of hear those guys and sometimes they'll, they'll like complain enough to where the umpire is like, you know, maybe he is, maybe he is balking, you know, um, you kind of run into some of that stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it all worked out. I don't, I don't remember getting called for a Bach last year, but um, I definitely remember the year before getting called for a Bach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking about the year before last year, I wanted to touch on because we talked about it last week with Schneider. Um, how electric the Rogers Center is during playoff baseball. You got the opportunity to pitch in Game Two of the Wild Card Series. You absolutely fucking shoved. I was in the five hundreds, just absolutely grinding away. But what was that atmosphere like for you? Was that the craziest atmosphere you ever pitched in? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's the craziest atmosphere. You know, twenty one. I got the Dodgers Game Two. Uh, and I mean, that's just such a rivalry that it was, that was pretty intense too, but it was outside. And so the, it's, it's just not as loud, you know, but yeah, I mean, I thought warming up that game, I just kind of got a sense that like, if we can score first, this place is absolutely going to lose their mind. And we did. 
Um, and it was crazy. Like the, the whole place was nuts. And I mean, when you're in a game like that, you're just trying to kind of like not ride the emotions, especially as a pitcher. You know, it's kind of like what Bassett talked about. Like you're you're in your own bubble out there. You're trying to not let anything into your bubble. Um, so for me, that was a super cool game because, you know, it was actually one of my favorite moments with Snyder's, you know, he pulled me and uh, as he's pulling me, he's like, God's like, you know, hell of a job. Like take a moment as you're walking off this field to like soak this in, you know? And, and I usually never kind of let myself even look up. I usually kind of just keep my head down. And I mean, that was the first time I looked up and it's funny if you watch the video of me coming off the field, I'm literally like shaking my head as I get close to the dugout because I'm like, this place is insane right now. You know, just the amount of love and like support that I felt and like the thing that I feel from from the fans. I mean, it was it was crazy. Like there's nothing like that. That's what you dream of as a as a pitcher, especially a starter, you know, to to be in an elimination game like that, you know, do well and then come off the field to, you know, forty thousand people and just making you feel like you're the greatest thing ever. I mean, it was it was super cool. And um, it was unfortunate because, you know, obviously the way that the game turned out um, sucked because you went from such a high to, to such a low pretty quickly. And, you know, we had guys banged up in the in the training room. You know, I think George had a concussion and, you know, looked in his eyes and, and he was just kind of seeing stars and, and Bo was messed up. And, you know, everybody was just kind of like, man, it just sucked the way that we lost. So, I mean, that was tough, but. Yeah, walking off that field, I mean, I, was, I wasn't I was walking off that field. I was floating, you know, literally, like, my legs. I couldn't feel my legs. Like, if I would have fell down, I, I wouldn't have known. Like, you know, it was it was crazy. Probably definitely the coolest moment, you know, besides the sack fly, for sure. But oh, Yeah, uh, that's way better. So, I think one of the compliments, the best compliments you could have right now is whenever you kind of pitch poorly, it's all in retrospect, too, you pitching poorly is different than some other people, is – People just think you're tipping pitches. It's not that you're pitching poorly. And it was two years ago, too. You said the one thing was you, your glove. You just got a bigger glove. How big of a glove did we get to now? Because the thing looks massive compared to some other people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's close to 13 inches. Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, but I mean, I got some big hands. So, I mean, I've always kind of needed a big glove. Um, but, yeah, I mean... And honestly, so every glove is different. Like you might get a glove that you think is 13 inches and then, you know, it comes in and you mold it the way that you want and it gets smaller. Um, but then some gloves just look huge on you, you know? <laughs> and uh, it's funny because usually someone says a comment about it. Like you can kind of hear the comments from your teammates, like, you know, or guys on the bus will kind of say just like random things like, you know, how did you miss that ground ball with that big of a glove or something like that? And so, um, you know, it's funny, but yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing. Anytime there's a guy on second base, they're trying to relay something. Um, I think that's the unfortunate thing about, you know, the whole Astros thing and, and everything that's changed since then is, you know, no more is there's not even signs anymore. So you can't try to pick signs anymore. So they're trying to look at other ways of, of, you know, trying to steal something with what you're doing with your body language or, or with your wrist or, you know, where your hand is, you know, sometimes your glove pokes out a little bit more on a certain pitch. And, you know, that's one thing that Pete Walker is, you know, obsessed with is constantly looking at these things and he can see it right away. You know, he'll, he'll see it right away in the next bullpen. He's like, Hey, this is, this is what I think you were doing. Um, you know, just try to really, squeeze your glove when you throw this certain pitch or, you know, and kind of everybody has gone through that at some point in their career, to be honest. Um, you see a lot of young kids that come up and, you know, it's the first time we face somebody and in the second inning, everybody in the dugout can see it. Things are prepared, you know, other things, it, it takes someone kind of being in the league for a while to really understand what they're even looking at. Yeah, and and speaking about Pistol Pete Walker, we're 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 Pete Walker stands on this podcast. We think he's the greatest to ever do it. Obviously, we grew up with him as a Blue Jays hit, uh, pitching coach. What is it like playing under Pete Walker? I mean, this guy turns every single pitcher. I mean, 
Bowden talked about on the podcast how good he was. Bassett always talked about how good he is. What is it like for you as a veteran guy to learn from Pete Walker, who knows so much about the game and has shown that he has so much success working with pitchers? Yeah, uh, you know, the biggest thing about Pete is, like, he just has an aura about him. Like, you're you're around him, and you just – he just has a way of, of kind of going about his business, the way he talks to players. Um, you know, he can – he can break things down to make you understand them if, if you don't understand what he's trying to tell you. Um, and he's, he's the ultra competitor, which is what you want as a pitching coach. You know, we always joke that, you know, if, if Pete could be out there, he would a hundred percent. Like if he, if he could have one more outing in a big spot, like he loves that stuff and he wants us to do so well. He gets so nervous because of it, but it's because he's so passionate you know, that's what you, that's what you want as a player. You want someone that's, you know, going to be in your corner and um, he's, he's always got our back, maybe a little too much sometimes. Like he's yelling at every umpire, you know, every single pitch, you know? And so it's, it's pretty funny, but he's such a fiery person, but um, such a genuine person. And, um, you know, he's been great for me to kind of bounce ideas off of. And, uh, you know, he's incredible. I can't talk, um, you know, well enough about him and, and what he brings to the table, uh, the way that he can know how to talk to each guy individually, you know, and know their needs. I think he's incredible at that, you know, especially you think about our staff, you know, we got guys from Korea, guys from Japan, guys from Florida State, different, you know, he has to kind of be that, you know, sergeant, I guess, for all of us. And, and he just loves being able to watch us and watch us go about our business and, always trying to put us in situations for us to be successful. I listened to the pitching ninja interview you did, where it's kind of all about your splitter. And the interesting thing I took from that was you get the blood blister on your middle finger. Every time you throw it, is that still a thing? And how is that kind of different from the blisters that take people out of games and kind of explain that whole thing to the people who don't know? I think, you know, I think a lot of guys now who, get blisters and take themselves out I don't I don't think they know how to pitch with the blister I think that's the problem for me I get excited when I see the blister because that usually means that it's it's rolling off this side of my finger which is what I want so if it's early in the game like you know even as early as the second inning and I look down and I'm starting to get one like in my mind I know like all right I got my good split today um, and then really, I mean, there's certain times where I'll throw it and it'll catch a seam and it kind of, you know, it doesn't feel great, but I have so much adrenaline that I'm just like, you know, I'm never going to come out of a game for a blister. Yeah. I've, I've always said that, like, that will not be a thing. I've had them pop before and like blood on my pants and stuff, but it's like at that moment, it's like, whatever, you know, I don't, I can, I can do enough in the weight room for the next four days, you know, or training room to, to be good. Like make sure my finger is good. But yeah, I mean, it's a runny joke. Cause I'm always messing with my finger, like constantly, um, you know, I feel like I'm like a nail specialist. Like I'm, I'm, you know, constantly messing with it and, you know, but I've figured out kind of what I need to do in between starts to make sure that that's not a problem. I don't throw my split in bullpens in between my starts. And, and that kind of takes away some of the stress of that, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely something that uh, took me a while to kind of get used to, but it still happens all the time too, especially certain, certain places where it's very humid, you know, or it's kind of two extremes. If it's super humid and really hot, then I'll get them. And then if it's cold and dry, I'll get them, you know, usually Rogers center, you don't have to worry about that because if it's so cold, they'll close, they'll close it. Right. So, um, but sometimes being on the road, you know, when you're on the road, you get way worse rubbed up balls than you do at home on the home side. So you usually run into more problems on the road than you do at home. That makes sense. Talking about on the road and all that, what is the what is the atmosphere for you being a Blue Jays player that's the worst to play in? Like the most hostile, the fans hate you the most. Like where do you get it the worst as a, as a starting pitcher warming up in the bullpen? You know, for me, it's the places where they're like as close as they get to you. Um you know, Boston used to be really bad. Like when Boston's really good and it's a big series and they kind of, when they, when they want to be dicks, you know, they'll be dicks, you know? So, so they'll be right on there yelling at you and, you know, 
um, saying everything they could you could imagine. Uh, Seattle's pretty good at that because you know the bullpen is right next to like the bars and stuff. They used to have a plexiglass window behind uh, behind the catcher where you warmed up in Seattle. And, like, it was in a bar. And people would just, like, stand in front of the thing with their drinks, you know, and flip you off as you're trying to, like, find your curveball. And, like, I just always thought that was super cool. Um, you know, you hear about old Yankee Stadium really being that. The new one you get a lot when you're warming up. You know, you'll get the you'll get the good New York Yankees fans that that just kind of rear, you know, lean into you and and kind of are yelling at you. But then then you you go out into the game and all the all the seats around around the uh, dugout are like sponsored, you know, or everybody's wearing suits and ties and like it's a corporate event, you know. They don't yeah. necessarily like they're not necessarily diehard Yankees fans, so. You just don't hear as much of that. And, you know, especially if you can kind of start off the game pitching well, it, it, you know, it can get kind of quiet there, to be honest. But when you're warming up, you definitely hear that. Dude, did Swanee, did Swanee tell you the story of at Fenway Park, a fan stole his glove off of the bullpen? Really? Yeah, he I was he left his glove on top of the bullpen. Obviously, Swanee, that's just what he does. And he went to go warm up and he didn't have his glove. And a security guard saw a fan just walking through the aisle with his glove and brought it all the way down to him. So it goes to show you, like, that's how close you are to the fans in Fenway. Yeah, I mean, my I think it was my first year, my second, I was in the bullpen in Fenway. And, you know, it's eighth inning. They're doing Sweet Caroline. Uh, Tommy Hunter's warming up. And, like, the place is crazy. You know, Sweet Caroline at Fenway is super cool. If you've never been there and seen it, like, the whole crowd sings the song. You know, uh, at the time, they were one of the best teams in baseball, so it was packed. And, like, I'm sitting there. I'm like, man, this is sweet. Like, it's probably the second time I've ever been to Fenway. And all of a sudden, these legs just, like, plop right in front of me in the bullpen. I'm like, what the heck? And this this girl who's probably, you know, late 20s, like, pushes herself off the top of the bullpen to get into the bullpen and just completely – like eats it like face plant into the ground and like you know just full scorpion like and it's right in front of me like her legs are like completely open like I see everything you know like and and she's like wasted and she gets up and actually luckily she like Tommy Hunter throws a fastball right by her like she hits and he's like right here and throws it and it just sails right by her and everybody's like, holy crap. She turns around to her friends. She's like, yeah. And then she takes, she hops the like little fence to get onto the field. And they used to have a security guard that worked there for a long time. And he like loved to lay people out. He lived <laughs> to tackle people. And this chick was one step onto the warning track and gets laid out by this dude, you know, and like he comes back in the bullpen after everything settles and, you know, everybody's giving them claps, and he's like, I've been waiting for that, you know? <laughs> and I was like, this place is pretty sweet. Like, Fenway's pretty cool. The fans are crazy. Like, everybody's trying to have a good time anytime they go to Fenway. One of my favorite things to do on Twitter is just to rank swings on how nice they are. You're a guy, when you don't start, you're on the bench, obviously, watching the guys. Who are your three favorite Blue Jays swings? You think they have the nicest swings? You get to see it up close. Ooh. I'm a big fan of Cavs swing, Cavs and BGO. I love BGO yeah. swing. Um, there's just something about a left, a lefty swing. Like lefty swings are always prettier than righty swings. I don't care what anybody says. Um, you know, Whit Merrifield had like a, such a sweet little swing that he could kind of, you know, he controls the bat head so well that, you know, he'll just kind of, he looks like he's playing golf, you know? And so, um, I mean, Vladdy's, Vladdy's really fun to watch. He, his swing is just so powerful. Like sometimes he'll swing and miss, and like you can hear the bat. You know, you hear the like, whew. uh, you know, Bo has such a unique swing. You know, Bo's two strike approach. Uh, you know, where he's kind of just sitting on his front foot is so unique. And you know, I think if he ever wanted to just, you know, see how many singles he could get, I think he would 
he 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 could win a batting title very easily doing that. Uh, you know, I love Brandon Belt swing, like super unique lefty <laughs> swing. Uh, you know, I like Jano's swing too. I always tell Jano he swings like a caveman. Um, you know, the no batting gloves thing, like, uh, you know, so I mean, I don't know to rank them would be tough, but I, I'd say probably number one is, is Cav. Like I just love his lefty swing. And, you know, when he hit that walk off home run and dropped oh. the bat, like that was sick, you know, it's, oh, my it's God. so cool. Like, I mean, we have the best seat in the house to watch stuff like that. So, you know, when someone does something like that, it's just so cool. And it was, it was really sweet. Just electric stuff from COVID Cavan. That's what we call him because he was just electric that COVID year. But I got a question here again from Bassett. <laughs> Listen, Gossman, we'll be at spring training. You have an open invite to the Gate 14 house. I want to make that clear. Everyone's pulling my – everyone's coming. So you have an open invite to the Gate 14 house. Hopefully we make that happen. Uh, Chris Bassett said there's a golf match in the spring that I'd love to I'd love to get into this. It's, it's Bassett and you versus Romano and Swanee. Can you tell the people what's going on with this? Like, is this predetermined or – did he just make this up for the question? Yeah, I mean, I heard about this a day ago, so I guess it's a thing. But you know, sure, whatever. <laughs> are you gonna beat him? Where are you at with that? Are you a good golfer? He's wearing Melbourne golf stuff. He's a big golf guy. Look at that. I mean, I yeah, I can play a little bit. You know, I'm good enough to where I can play with just about anybody. But you know, also bad enough to where I can I can look really bad on some certain holes. You know, golf is golf is a hard hard sport. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of failure in golf and, uh, I'm, I definitely know about that, but I mean, I would say it's me and Bassett against Romano and Swanee. Yes. I I don't think Swanee is a good golfer. I don't think, no. I don't, I've never heard anything about him even playing golf. So yeah. So I'm going to take me and me and Bass for sure. I mean, well, the, if the Bassett is- could drive the ball well, then, then we're set. Well, Swanee said he's a catch hit golfer. So I, I listen, that's obviously not the confidence you need on the golf course, but um I don't know if Bassett's good. Avery that he Bassett told us he hasn't played in like forever, right? Yeah, he told us today he hasn't touched the sticks in a month. Yeah, that's not a good partner there, Gossie. We'll record that. That's, we'll get yeah, it going. That's not I that's not ideal. That's for no, sure. It's not great. It's not great. But speaking about uh, last year and all that, when did you and this is again my dumb brain question? At what point during a start did you realize, all right, my splitter's on today? Was it in the bullpen? Was it like, did, did you do reverse psychology where it's bad in the bullpen? It's really good in the game. Like, when did you realize, okay, I'm on the loose today? Uh, you know, honestly, I wish I could say that I feel that all the time. But, you know, some games, usually it gets better as the game goes on. You know, that's kind of true always. But some games, it's, it's better earlier, if that makes sense, you know? So sometimes I'll, I'll like finish the first inning. And if I had some really good splits in the first inning, then, then I feel pretty good saying that, you know, my splits probably going to be really good all night. Um, And it's just a matter of kind of trying to, trying to get to a spot to where I can throw it and, and doing enough with my fastball, um, whether it's up in the zone or down in the zone to kind of, either create more of a difference between it or make it look similar. So it's really just kind of about figuring that out. But, you know, sometimes in the bullpen, um, you know, I can throw my first couple and kind of know what kind of day it's going to be with it. But then also sometimes it'll be terrible for the first two innings. And then I'll throw the first one in the third inning. And I'm like, all right, there it is. And and now we go, Um, you know, but, the more that I throw it earlier in the game, usually the better off it is later in the game. Cause you know, when I get in the big spot, like that's kind of what I lean on is, is my split and being able to know when to throw a nasty one and when to throw one, you know, for, a, for a called strike or, or, or a pitch that, you know, is going to entice them. And, and also a pitch that, you know, if they swing at, they're not going to be able to do anything with it. One of the more viral moments from last year was when your daughter threw out the first pitch. How special of a moment was that for you? Because uh, we talked about who Mason and Swanee had their kids do it too, and they said it was an awesome experience. You looking back on that, what do you think about it again? We call your family the royal family, by the way. Like that's that's our royal family <laughs> in Canada. Like that's that's the king and queen and all all the kids and all that type of stuff. So just just we just wanted to make that clear. 
I love that. I love that. No, I mean, it was super cool. Uh, you know, to see how nervous and like she, she got out there and she was so nervous. She's looking around at everybody and then she kind of sees me and just kind of automatically like calms down and is like, you know, I've thrown stuff to my dad for, you know, my entire life. She's only five years old, but you know, so, uh, and I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm like, I can't believe that she had to throw out a first pitch. I told my wife, I'm like, I never threw out a first pitch. Like I've caught first <laughs> pitches, but to throw one out, you know, like it's so cool. And, um, she did it my first year in Toronto and, and now it's like, if they'll let her do it every year that I'm there, like I'm in a hundred percent. Um, you know, hopefully my last year, like my youngest one will, you know, be, be five and she'll be able to throw it right next to her sister. And, um, hopefully I can catch both of them. Like that would be, that would be awesome. As a parent, um, to just see her out on the stage, she's so innocent and so little in such, you know, an environment that I think is pretty hostile, you know, being out on the field, like we think of, going out and competing and stuff. And then she's just out there in a little pinstripe dress, you know, <laughs> like just cute as can be and uh, makes it to me, you know, one hops me and I'm telling her how great of a job she did and we get off the field. And she's like, but dad, she's like, they all cheered daddy. I'm like, yeah, of course they cheered. And she's like, but it bounced, you know, <laughs> like she, like she, that's the know, gold standard. That's like the innocence of kids. Like you saw it when when Maze's kid walked all the way back to the mound. He's like, "Wait, like <laughs> my dad throws from back here. This is where I'm gonna throw it from. Like I'm not yeah. gonna throw it from up here. Like my dad's on the mound. I'm gonna be on the mound." They, you know, they do so many funny things without even thinking that they're funny, just because they're so naive and so innocent. Yeah. And speaking about this, and I, this is a chance for me to redeem myself. When we interviewed Jano, I asked him if his nine month old son was aware that he's a professional baseball player looking back on and not the smartest question i've ever asked in the history of this podcast is your daughter aware of who you are because you told a story about when alec manoa struggled game one your daughter went over to manoa and hugged them is she aware that like you're like the best pitcher on the toronto blue jays like is she aware of what you do for work um yes and no she she knows that i think she knows that what i do is not normal but to her, that's all she knows. So it is normal, you know? So like a, a funny story, like we were in Toronto, had probably been there for a couple months, my first year. And she goes to this little like class, school kind of for a couple hours, you know, every day. And um, she asked one of the kids in the class, like, you know, like, does your dad play baseball too? You know, she just assumes that everybody's <laughs> dad plays baseball because when she goes to the kids' room at the field, she's playing with everybody whose dad plays baseball. And so she just assumed that everybody's dad does that, you know? Um, but, I mean, that's one of the coolest things. The older she gets, the more, like, you know, she cheers for me on the days that I pitch. And, you know, sometimes she'll come down and watch me warm up in the bullpen. And, um, you know, I think a lot about them when I'm in tough situations, um, knowing that they're kind of watching and uh, – you know, I always jokingly say I hope one day that they watch me pitch on TV or something when they're older and can kind of see, see like the passion that I have and, and how much I'm trying to do everything I can to, to make them proud. But, uh, you know, it's, it's cool. Now she sends me videos every day that I pitch and, you know, like kick some booty today, daddy, you know, like those <laughs> things, you know, are, are so cool. And, um, you know, I hope that, but yeah, I don't think she's going to remember too much. Like, I think she's going to remember traveling a lot. She's on flights all the time. My wife is, is crazy and flies all over the place with them all year, you know, a week in Toronto and then a week at home and then a week in Toronto, a week at home pretty much for the whole season. Like that's kind of the way wow. we do it. And so, um, I mean, last year, my youngest flew eight, 48 times. You know, she took 48 flights last year. So, you know, my wife told me the other day, it's funny. She was like, you know, when you're retired and we travel as a family for the first time, like they're going to have so many miles. I'm going to have so many miles. We're going to be upgraded to first class and you're going to be in the back of the plane because, you know, like we don't get miles for charter flights. Yeah. I'm like, man, like what a life, like what a life they're going to have. They're going to have so many miles, you know, like, um, 
but you know they're they're pros at traveling now they're they're great at it but you know it's uh it, it's crazy for sure i have a proposition for taylor i mean taylor's probably the most i would probably say like the most famous or easily noticeable uh wife on the toronto blue jays i've mentioned this to swanee after the podcast it's like my my brain just the creativity working taylor's got to start a podcast a baseball wives podcast <laughs> would do absolute numbers like obviously like people would be very interested in what goes on in their lives it'd be very informative me and a you know what avery will produce it i won't produce it but <laughs> sure uh, <laughs> a baseball wife's podcast would rock just something to mention yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't trust her with that. Some of the stories that would come out, you know, it's – I don't know about that. But, um, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> a good idea. After you – after the season finished and you kind of sat down and looked at it, how did you nitpick things and things for you to work on for next year after you had such a successful season? Again, like elite pitcher, what's the next step for you that you're thinking about to continue to get better? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing for me is is trying to throw more pitches, um, you know, trying to, I've, you know, I worked a lot this year throwing sinkers with Bassett, you know, and, and he's a guy that's like, dude, your sinker's good. Like, you need to throw it. Um, and I'm like, dude, I have PTSD from giving up home runs on the sinkers early in my career, you know, like, I don't know. Um, but he's, he, you know, they got me throwing a little, a little sweeper that I started throwing at the end of the year. Um, I actually think I threw more in the postseason game than I had all year in any other game. Um, just a different look. Uh, yeah, but I mean, to be honest, for me, the biggest, you know, I guess weakness in, in my game is that was really apparent last year is holding runners. Um, I was not not very good at holding runners. And when I think back to how many times, you know, I pitched really well, but a guy scored on a, on a single, you know, being on second base because he stole a second base, you know, or timed me up well enough because I wasn't changing my times. Um, you know, and I think back how many times I could have maybe not given up any runs in certain games or, um, you know, I, I legitimately think I, I maybe could have won the Cy Young if I was better at holding runners, you know, and it just put a, put us in a lot better situation if I was better at holding runners. You know, having a guy at first, knowing that if you can keep him there and get a ball on the ground with our infield, we have such a good chance to turn a double play. That's one, one thing I have to be better at, um, you know, using the slide step more. Uh, with the clock, it's, you know, it's even harder on pitchers because they have something to time you up even more so. Um, we're going to have less time this next season. So, like I said, they're always looking for every little, you know, thing that they can do to try to kind of try to find an advantage and so for me that's that's my biggest focus right now is to really hone in on on those things knowing that it's such a big difference maker when you can keep guys at the base that they're at um and the bloop hit your bloop single where you break a guy's bat and the guy scores because he's in scoring position um would happen a lot less so you know, that's a big focus of mine, but the biggest is just coming to the season healthy, get through, you know, get through spring training healthy, um, you know, and then I feel pretty confident that I can make all my starts. And, you know, if I'm, if I can make all my starts and be healthy, I, I feel pretty confident that I can go out there and give us the chance to win every five days, you know, and give everything I got. It kind of depends on how I feel sometimes, but um you know, I feel pretty confident in saying that, that I've kind of figured out how to get my body right and what I need to do to be at my best. So, you know, now it's about working on the little things, the the changing up the times to the plate, the, you know, the holds. It's just, it's hard now. It's hard now with the rules, um, with the pitching rules, you know, the clock, the disengagements, which is ridiculous that that's, that, that is even a thing. Um, you know, guys are just running like crazy. You know, everybody made such a big deal out of Ronald Acuna, you know, stealing all those bases. But everybody forgets the bases are 30% bigger than they've ever been. The guys are faster, you know, and, and now you're giving them – you can only pick over twice. You know, it's like 
they might as well just, you know, let them like walk to second base because some of these guys are just that good. So, um, you know, it kind of, and it sucks for catchers too, because it messes up their entire metrics because, you know, now it, it doesn't really even matter if a guy is, 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 has a great pop time because if the catcher, if the pitcher, you know, already used one of his disengagements or already used two, then, then what are you supposed to do? You know? And, um, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at, though. Yeah, and, and this is my, this is the last question. So obviously, we've gotten I've had the privilege of getting really close to Chris Bassett. I so obviously, firstly, I want to say thank you to Chris Bassett for making this possible. Two part question: What did C Bass say to you to persuade you to come on this podcast? And two, what is it like being teammates, friends with Chris Bassett? Because listen, I go out on the battlefield with him every single day on Fortnite. I know how much of a competitor he is. <laughs> What is it like being teammates with him? That's the second part of the question. Yeah, I mean, I'll answer the second part first. He uh, he's great. I mean, he's he's a great teammate. His his locker was next to mine last year. It was next to me in spring training. Uh, the biggest thing that I can say about about Chris is Chris is a, a pro's pro. He wants to be as good as he possibly can. We've had a lot of conversations about. You know, we're we're a lot alike in a lot of ways to where, you know, failure in our mind is is not an option. Um, and and we're almost so afraid to fail that that we're going to succeed. Um, but man, when he's when he takes the mound, like, I mean, the, his nickname is a prime example. You know, the Hound. Like, he is so he's so competitive. He wants to just absolutely dominate. But he's very smart while he's out there. He doesn't make dumb decisions when he's out there. He's always thinking. Uh, for me to watch him, it's really cool because we couldn't be more different. You know, our lockers are right next to each other. We get we get along great. But watching him pitch and watching me pitch couldn't be more different. You know, he, he has seven, eight different pitches. You know, he'll throw them in any spot. He'll throw them in any situation. Um you know, he's, he's obviously his delivery is really unique. Uh, but I mean, the way he goes about it, he's such a good teammate, he's such a good person. Uh, his, his wife is amazing. His family's great. Um, you know, his daughter and my daughter became pretty close last year. And so, um, you know, when you have relationships like that and you guys can both kind of succeed together, especially him, his first year being in Toronto last year, being able to watch him, have career year his first year here uh it was awesome you know and and everybody kind of became fans of him um and it was it was it was awesome for for good reason like watching him pitch every five days is incredible but he's just such a good person he's such a good person um but he's he's a dude's dude for sure like he loves talking about sports he loves talking about the the browns and like you know sometimes it's like you'd get annoyed because that's all he wants to talk about, especially the fantasy football thing. Like he loves that. <laughs> he lives for that. He's all about it. You know, he's, we got a group chat. He's the first one to fire off, like, you know, yelling at, at certain guys for acquiring other guys. Like he is just, um, but he keeps it loose and he's great. He's great with uh, the younger guys too. Um, I think as a pitcher, like watching him go about his business is, is, is a, you know, if you're a young guy watching him go about his business, like you could learn a lot from him. Um, he just thinks very seriously and he's a pro's pro, but all he also knows that, you know, sometimes you're going to feel great and, and, you know, make the perfect pitch, but it's not going to work out because that's baseball. Right. So, um, you know, we, we get along great though. And he's, he's, he's been a great teammate of mine for sure. No, I was saying, yeah, he said, yeah, he said he was pumping our tires. He was, he calls you the ghost. Because he said you you never answer text messages, so I'd love to hear uh, the 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 pitch that Seabass <laughs> gave you about coming on here. Okay, well, the thing about Bassett is Bassett doesn't text; he sends you videos of him talking in his truck. Yes, yes, and it's yes. just like my wife thinks it's the weirdest thing. We'll just be sitting there, and I'll just play a video of him talking. She's like, "He send you another video," and I'm just <laughs> like, "Yeah." I don't know. I don't know why you can't just text me, you know, or, or call me, just call me on the phone. If you, if, you know, um, but you know, that's just, that's him. I don't know. He, he, he does that. Like he did that from like the first week I met him, sent me a video talking about something like, 
it's like, all right, I guess this is going to go. But yeah, I mean, he was just kind of like, Hey, I think, I think you should go on here. Like they're awesome. Um, you know, he was like, they're essentially on our side, you know, which, which is always good to know as a player. Um, you know, you never want to go into a podcast that, uh, you feel like someone is, is trying to be malicious or, you know, trying to get clickbait or something like that. And so, you know, I actually went and listened to a couple of you guys, uh, you know, podcasts today and, um, you know, it's super cool what you guys are doing. So I wanted to come on. Listen, man, you come on this Thank podcast, you. you got, you got a big, uh, you got a big fan group behind you when you come on here, you're going to be getting people at spring training telling you they loved you on gate 14. So um, listen, I I, I want to end it with this. Obviously, not to get sentimental, but if you told me and Avery a year and a half ago we'd be interviewing Kevin Gossman, I would have called you an absolute idiot. Uh, I rarely take a step back and be like, I can't believe we just did this. So I really appreciate you taking the time for us, man. Um, it's just go show you the Gate 14 rocket ship. We're buzzing out here. We appreciate guys like you being on our side, being on the Toronto Blue Jays. We love what you do. We always will be rooting for you, man. And uh, we're excited for 2024 for you. We really are. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'm super excited. Obviously, got a young team still. So, you know, a lot of optimism. And, um, you know, listen, we're all chomping at the bit to get down to spring training. Uh, we have such a close-knit group of guys, you know, and that's why, I, you know, if we can if we can win with this group, it's going to be even more special than, than if they were to bring in every single person that you could ever imagine. So that's what I'm excited about is, you know, we don't really feel like we have like a missing link. We just got to kind of make sure that all those links are kind of welded a little bit better together. And so, um, you know, that's what we're excited about. But yeah, I mean, thanks for having me guys. I'll probably see you guys in spring. You know, if we want to hit the links or something, we can definitely make that happen too. Yeah. Uh, listen, Avery, do you have anything more for our guy? Listen, Gosh, no, thanks Kev. Appreciate your time, man. We'll really be there March it. 1st to 6th. All right. I'll, I'll send you the note. Bassett, we're already got Bassett locked in. We're doing a little gate 14 sleepover with Ernie and Schneider and Horowitz. Obviously, you're a little bit more, you're a little bit too mature for that, obviously. But we got sleepover, some stuff locked it. in here. We got some stuff locked in here for spring. So we'll definitely even go for dinner or something along those lines. I'll uh I'll hit you up and uh we'll, we'll get going from there. But keep doing your thing, man. You always got us. We'll be fighting the fights on Twitter for you till the end of time. You know that. We, uh, we like to get in the mud over here. So you got us behind you. <laughs> All right. I love that. Appreciate it, guys.